We're looking at the second commandment today. As I just read it from Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is not an absolute prohibition of art. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. If we took that and stopped there, if we took that at face value, we couldn't draw a picture of a fish. If we took that at face value, we couldn't draw anything, sculpt anything, etc., etc. This would be a total prohibition of all visual arts. But the key to understanding this is related to verse 5, which says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. This, the context of this has to do with the worship of God. How are we to conceive of God? And how is God to be worshipped? So what are our duties with respect to the second commandment? We're going to begin there with the duties. Then we're going to go to the logic behind the duty. And then we're going to go to some applications. That's what we're going to do this morning. So let's start with the duty. What is the duty laid upon us here in the second commandment? And this is it in a nutshell. This is the big idea of today's message. We ought not to speculate about God, but we ought to rather worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. We ought not to speculate about God, but we are to conceive of Him and to worship Him in a manner that is according to the way He has revealed Himself to us. We don't start with our imagination of what God is like or might be like or what we might conceive of Him to be as if God flows from our hearts and our imaginings. Rather, we start with God and His self-disclosure as we conceive of Him and as we worship Him. There are three aspects to this duty implied in this commandment. The first is we ought not to make actual images whether carvings or pictures or statues or monuments of other gods, obviously. That's in keeping with the first commandment that we looked at last week. You shall have no other gods before me. Clearly we can't say, well, Yahweh prohibits images of himself, but he doesn't prohibit images of other gods. All visual representations, clearly, of other gods are prohibited by this commandment. So that's one aspect. You shall not make those kinds of images. But more to the point, we ought not to make actual images, visual representations of Yahweh Himself. God is not merely saying in this section that you should not make images of other gods. He's also saying you shall not make images of me. 
That's, that's very clear by implication. Obviously, we ought not to make images of other gods. He's already stipulated that in the first commandment. And so the second commandment would be redundant if it was literally only referring to other gods. The Roman Catholic Church doesn't abide by this commandment. If you go in Roman Catholic churches, you see all kinds of imagery. Even, even you'll, you'll see the father portrayed as an old man on stained glass windows. You see, obviously, images of Christ very clearly. Obviously, you see Im- other images as well, saints and all kinds of things. Their, their worship is very, very image heavy. And in their official teaching, the way they break up the Ten Commandments, you know, is they actually group the first and the second together as the first. And then what they do is they break up the tenth in two. You, you shall not covet your neighbor's uh, uh, wife, I believe. Sorry, I'm just looking at it here. But I don't, have, I don't have that actually written down what I'm saying. But I looked at it this week. But they break it down as you shall not covet this and you shall not covet that. Those are the ninth and tenth commandments according to the Roman Catholic Church. Because they, ha- they see that there's ten words, ten commands. But they say, well, images obviously has to be other gods. And therefore, we've got to break up one of the other commandments. So they break up the coveting commandment. You shall not covet this, ninth commandment. You shall not covet that, tenth commandment. I don't want to misspeak, so... You can go do your own research as to the official Roman Catholic position since I don't have it written down. But that's how they do it. However, the, that seems exegetically dubious, as I think all of us could see. You don't have to be a rocket scientist that it's, it's more clear to see that verse 3 is a distinct commandment from verse 4 is more, much more plausible and much more probable than that verse 17 is divided up into two commandments. So it, that is a misguided way to understand it. The, verse 4 is indeed the second commandment. And because it's a distinct commandment, it's clearly not simply trying to make the redundant point that we should not have other gods. You shall not have other gods before me, and you shall not have images of other gods before me. You shall not have other gods before me and you shall not make images. Clearly that encompasses not making images of other gods, but it also encompasses not having images of Yahweh. Now already, some might be having a knee-jerk reaction to this. Well, what do you mean? We can't draw any pictures of God? God can't be represented in a visual way? What about picture books for children? What about movies? What about the Jesus film? What about the passion of the Christ? How can you say that we can't represent God visually? These things have been beneficial to me. These things have been beneficial to others in evangelism. These things are beneficial to children. What do you mean? How can this be? Or you may not be having a knee-jerk reaction, but theological questions are coming to the forefront of your minds. What about the dove that landed on Jesus at his baptism? 
Does this mean that we cannot draw a dove? What about Jesus himself? He is really human. And he is the image of the invisible God, right? As Colossians 1, 15 tells us. So how are we to understand this commandment in view of the incarnation of Christ? How are we to understand this commandment in view of the incarnation of Christ? And that's a million dollar question that I'm going to defer to later. How are we to understand this commandment in view of the incarnation of Christ? Well, what does this text say? What did it mean then? Does the incarnation of Christ change anything? If so, what and how? As I said, we'll explore this set of specific questions in a few minutes. But let's continue with the third aspect of this duty taught to us in this commandment. Not only are we to refrain from making actual visual representations of Yahweh, but we also ought not to make mental images of God. As in conceiving of Him to be a certain way, according to our imagination. In other words, we are to conceive of Him and to worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. After all, this is the way that all the commandments are to be understood. You remember in the introductory messages that I preached last month, leading up to this series, the commandments reach all the way down to the heart. And so just as it won't do you any good to say, well, I wasn't actually physically literally unfaithful to my spouse i simply lusted in my heart jesus tells us that is sinful and that is part of what is wrapped up in the commandment against adultery and again it won't do you any good to say well i didn't actually kill him i just wish he was dead again jesus tells us in matthew chapter 5 that that is included under the umbrella commandment against murder And so it won't do us any good to say, well, I've stopped short of actually drawing a picture or making an image of Yahweh. I've just conceived of Him to be a certain way in my heart. So clearly this reaches all the way down into even the way we think, the way that we conceive of God. Not only what we do with our hands, but what we do with our hearts. So these are the three aspects of our duty toward God as taught to us in this commandment. This is our threefold duty according to the second commandment. No images of other gods, obviously, but also no images of Yahweh and no imaginings about Yahweh, even if we don't actually make them into visible outward images. Let's examine now the logic behind this commandment. The logic behind this commandment is this, and it's really just a restatement of the big idea of today's message. God doesn't want us to speculate about Him, but He wants us rather to conceive of Him and to worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, uniformly. No one in Scripture is praised for speculating about God, for speculating about who God is and how He wants to be worshipped. Nobody's praised for that in Scripture. In fact, a couple of people are struck dead for that in Scripture. You see that Nadab and Abihu, who are sons of Aaron, offer worship to God that he has not prescribed. 
In other words, they're thinking, I, I imagine God will be pleased with this. I'm pretty sure God would like this. In other words, up underneath the offering of this unauthorized fire is a conception of Yahweh that is different from how He has revealed Himself in His Word. God strikes him dead. Nadab and Abihu, the well-meaning priests, dead. Uzzah, the ark of God is being carried on an ox cart. And the oxen stumble and the ark of God is about to fall off. And Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. God has said, you're not supposed to touch it. But Uzzah, presumably underneath this touching of the ark, conceives of God as one who surely he will understand. Under these circumstances, surely God is not like that, as he's actually said, but is actually like this. Dead. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, speaks more directly to this principle. Verses 15 to 19 read like this. Watch yourselves very carefully. He's speaking to the Israelites. Since you saw no form. Since you saw no form. Since you saw no form. On the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Since you saw no form. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and moon and stars all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. The logic there is, since you saw no form. Since I didn't reveal any form to you, don't go make a form. Again, the big idea of today's message. We are not to speculate about God, but we are to conceive of Him and worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. Paul makes the same point in Acts 17.29, which we read earlier this morning. We ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We ought not to think that God is like that which proceeds from us. In other words, whatever comes out of you is by definition a creation rather than the creator. The creation cannot bring into existence the creator. And so when we try to bring forth something from our imaginings, 
what we bring forth is certainly not going to be God. By definition, it's going to be finite. That is, with limits. It's going to be temporal. That is, not eternal. Because I, as a finite and temporal being, cannot bring forth that which is infinite and that which is eternal. So when my God originates in me, my God is not the creator, my God is a created thing. Therefore, God, we don't arrive at a proper conception of God by looking within ourselves, but we receive a proper conception of God from God. Because God can accurately and properly tell us who He is. We cannot accurately and properly tell God who He is. So this is the logic behind the commandment here. God doesn't want us to speculate about Him. But He wants us to conceive of Him and to worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. Therefore, we must look to God's own self-disclosure for proper and appropriate ways to conceive of Him and to speak about Him. We must not venture beyond what has been revealed as we conceive of Him and as we speak of Him. So what does all of this mean for us? Let's consider now some practical applications of this duty, including, as I promised, what this means with respect to pictures of Jesus. Let's start with that, in fact. Pictures of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Again, the logic behind the commandment in Exodus is that God doesn't want us to go beyond what has been revealed. God doesn't want us to speculate about who He is. He wants to self-disclose who He is. Since you saw no form, therefore, don't make a form. God doesn't actually say, in as much words, I have no form. He says, you simply have not seen one. So that, that wouldn't in itself preclude God from having a form. You understand? But He says, since you haven't seen a form, don't make a form. You let me tell you who I am, how you should conceive of me to be. You don't start making forms because I haven't shown you any forms. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus shows up on the scene and He says, I and the Father are one. One of His disciples says, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Which is, which is funny. Even his statement is funny. Like as if that's a small request. Just grant this one little thing that we might behold the eternal Holy Father from whom and through Him and to Him are all things. Just show us the Father. Just do this one little thing and that will be enough for us. Which is just a funny question in the first place. But that's besides the point. Jesus says to him in response, if you have seen me, 
you have seen the Father. So in other words, Christ Jesus has come to show us the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 reads like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power, etc., etc. When we see Jesus... The way the scripture talks about it, we see God. He is the image of the invisible God. And so, in that sense, we can't say in the New Testament what God says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You saw no form. Because Jesus has come and said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When we look at Jesus, we know who God is. Jesus came to reveal God to us. This was God's plan all along. Not that He might be, not that He might reveal a little bit of Himself and then let us run with it. And whether it's, whether it's golden calves, whether it's, Statues of this sort or that sort, whether it's pictures, whether it's videos, whatever, that we would run with it and that we would bring the seed of God's revelation of Himself to full flower by our images. That's not how God has unfolded things. The way that God has unfolded things is that He Himself, in the person of His Son, has brought the seed of revelation to full flower that he himself has shown us fully thoroughly finally decisively authoritatively who he is in the person of his son let the little children come to me Jesus filled with compassion at the crowds Jesus looking at him Loved him. Jesus said, Son, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, in all of his earthly actions, shows us the Father. Jesus, in his teaching, reveals to us the Father. Teaching about grace. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. You all, like sheep, have gone astray. You have turned everyone to his own way. But as it were, Jesus says something like this. I have come to die for you, my sheep. To rescue you from the peril that you're in. You want to see God? See Jesus. The good news that though we sheep could not rescue ourselves, the shepherd died for the sheep. As he hung there on the cross, he bore the wrath of God 
which threatened the sheep in our place. He gave us everything that we need in Himself. The provider, just as a shepherd provides for his sheep. So Christ provided for us at the cross. His righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. We see God when we see Jesus. Jesus has come to make God fully known. The image of the invisible God. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's helpful, so I'll use it again. If Genesis 1-1 is like the crack of dawn, where you just begin to see a little bit of who God is. Like if the Bible just stopped after Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness hovered over the face of the deep. If we just stopped. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We would know something of who God is but not nearly as much as we know by the end of the book. So if the beginning of the Bible was like the crack of dawn, when we get to Jesus, it's the noonday sun. When we get to Jesus, we see who God is. God is quite capable of representing Himself to us. God is quite capable of disclosing Himself to us. He doesn't need our aid in bringing a revelation of Himself to full flower. He's been progressively revealing Himself throughout history. And in Christ Jesus, He said, this is who I am, essentially. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now along these lines then, people ask the question, is it right then, or is it legitimate to draw pictures of Jesus? Because people did see a form. They saw a human form. And when I say form, I'm using it in the same sense that Deuteronomy chapter 4 speaks of a form, visual representation. But more than that, the scriptures insist on Jesus' full and true humanity. And so, so we didn't just see a form in terms of like an apparition, an illusion, a hallucination, an appearance. We saw a human united to God, fully God, fully man. This is the, the mystery of the incarnation. But well, we saw an actual man. Is it not right then? Or is it not legitimate to draw a picture of a man to represent Jesus. Well, let's consider these things. Any picture that we draw isn't actually Jesus, obviously. But, but should I say obviously? Because it's not obvious to all. As I mentioned, when you go in Roman Catholic churches, you're going to see pictures and statues of Jesus. And people actually like burn candles and like pay veneration to these things. So is it, is it actually so obvious? 
we're running beyond what God has given us when we draw pictures from our own imagination of Jesus. We can't draw actually Jesus. Put it this way, not all men are the God man. So you can't just take a generic man and say we're going to worship that generic man. Right? The only one worthy of worship is Jesus. And so whoever is in that picture, whoever is on that crucifix, is not actually Jesus. And so we shouldn't worship. That should be clear to us all, I think, right? So all of those kind of pictures are out, for sure. 100%, right? If we say that we need pictures to aid us in our worship, again, we're going beyond what is written. Certainly, we're going, at the very least, beyond the sufficiency of Scripture. If we were to say, well, I just don't connect with God very well through words. So I'm going to draw a picture to help me worship. Or I'm going to purchase a picture written, drit, I was going to say written, and then I was going to say dritten. <laughs> drawn. Drawn by someone who's a better artist than me. I'm going to buy a picture drawn by someone who's a better artist than me to aid me in my worship. Again, this does not fit at all with the, 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 the general tenor of Scripture and images. And it, it certainly attacks the sufficiency of Scripture in that we don't, if that were the case, we don't actually have all that we need for life and godliness. Right? So all of those kind of pictures, all of them, out. Gone. Not saying they don't exist. I'm saying they're out of balance for the Christian. We, it is sinful to make pictures, procure pictures, use pictures to aid us in our worship of God. That's sinful, period. Including pictures of Jesus. 100%. Now, to be honest with you, I'm working through a nuanced position on this. Alright? It is possible, though this is not my settled position, it is possible to me that God might permit abstract pictures of Jesus to help illustrate what has already been revealed to us. As opposed to illustrating more than what has been revealed. Right? So, let me, let me quote Edmund Clowney, who's a late professor at Westminster Seminary as he articulates a position that I think may have some merit. He says this, We must not bow to the pressure exerted on us as Christians to remove physicality from the revelation of Jesus. Such pressures are not unique to our times. An early error with regard to the Incarnation was the Docetic heresy. The teaching that the physical nature of Jesus was only an appearance, not solid flesh. The Gnostics also denied the physicality of Christ, claiming that the true Christ sat on a tree laughing as Jesus, a substitute, was put to death on the cross. You have probably met friends and neighbors whose definition of Christ rejects the physical birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In our desire not to profane Christ, 
by worshiping an image of him, we also must be cautious that we don't spiritualize him into thin air. So Jesus really actually has a body, you know. We will be raised to have a body like Christ's resurrected body. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us. Jesus didn't come and appear to be human. Right? Or he didn't come temporarily in human form as we've been talking about some pre-incarnate appearances in the Old Testament, including to Abraham, who we're going to talk about tonight. Jesus actually took on flesh, assumed humanity. Clowney's concern is that if we're reticent to acknowledge Jesus' human body, we're actually doing an injustice to the biblical theology of the Incarnation. And I can see some merit in that. Thus, Clowney argues, if we show no pictures of Jesus' everyday life to our children, how will they know His reality? So we have picture books with David and Goliath and Abraham, and then we have pictures of the Pharisees and the disciples, and so on and so forth, but Jesus is conspicuously absent from all of these pictures. Clowney's argument is, does that not actually help or might it not lead to our children actually conceiving of Jesus in an unbiblical way? In other words, not according to what has been revealed. That's Clowney's argument. This is a conservative reformed professor at Westminster Seminary. If we show no pictures of Jesus' everyday life to our children, how will they know his reality? Okay, point taken. And I'm going to move on from that perspective. But Clowney's question, if we show no pictures of Jesus' everyday life to our children, how will they know his reality? That raises another question, which is this. Is showing pictures of Jesus to our children the only way to avoid spiritualizing him into thin air? As Clowney is concerned about. Now Daniel Hyde, uh, who is a reformed pastor in the U.S., makes a counterpoint, which is actually the almost, as far as I can tell, almost unanimous reformed position. All right? Our children, brought up in the reformed tradition, have learned Heidelberg Catechism, questions and answers 96 to 98, as well as confess the true humanity of Christ in questions and answers 35 and 47 and 48, as well as the Belgic Confession, articles 18 and 19, without images for 450 years. Thus, he argues, our Reformed children are in no danger of thinking that Christ is not actually human. Right? That's a strong point as well. Certainly, certainly aids to worship. Pictures that might be aids to our worship. Right? We need this in order to worship properly. This will help foster my devotion to God. Anything along those lines is certainly prohibited by this commandment, 100%. As I said, to be honest with you, I'm still working through this issue specifically with respect to that nuanced position. Can you, can you have a little picture of a baby surrounded by family in a manger to help our little children see that Christ actually became a baby? Maybe, maybe not. I'm going to leave that specific nuance 
on your consciences to study and draw your own conclusions with respect to this regarding abstract representations of a human as a character in visual portrayals and Bible stories as a part of just educating our children and helping them not visualize what has not been revealed but visualize what has already been revealed. But nevertheless, though that's obviously an elephant in the room as we come to the second commandment, at the same time, it's actually a very peripheral issue to the second commandment. It's actually not nearly, not nearly the most central issue that we're dealing with when we come to the second commandment. So it's worth touching on, but it's not worth making the ultimate emphasis of our message today. The main emphasis of our message today is, as I said earlier, we are not to speculate about God, but we are to conceive of Him and worship Him as He has revealed Himself. That's the main emphasis of the message today. How that fits with the incarnation of Christ and pictures of Jesus is actually a relatively peripheral issue. The fundamental thrust of the second commandment is that we are not to speculate about God but we are to conceive of Him and worship Him as He has revealed Himself to us. So, as I alluded to earlier in the service, anytime that that words like this or thoughts like this come into our hearts or minds, we're sinning. Well, I prefer to think of God like this. Well, to me, God is like this. I just can't conceive of a God like that. Anytime those sorts of thoughts come into our minds or come out of our mouths, we're sinning. Because what we're doing when we do that is we're conceiving of God other than as He has revealed Himself to us. When we realize that that's actually the main thrust of the second commandment, we can see how pictures of Jesus actually becomes kind of a subsidiary or peripheral issue. It's worth thinking through, but it's actually not the main thing. The main thing is where do we get our ideas about God? Do you dream them up yourself? You come up with them in your own imagination, your own speculation? You listen to somebody who posits himself as some kind of a guru or some kind of an authority on the divine whether he be a thinker from another religion or some sort of spiritual mystic or whether he poses himself as a pastor or a bishop or an apostle or whatever title he might give himself and he tells you God is like this where you see that because if, you, if you're not showing me here, you're actually breaking the second commandment as you teach me. You're, you're encouraging me to conceive of God other than as He has revealed Himself to be. Certainly this precludes things that contradict Scripture. We obviously ought not to conceive of God in ways that contradict Scripture. But we are also not to conceive of God in ways that run beyond Scripture. 
we're not just to let use scripture as a diving board off which we launch and and into a pool of our own supplementary material when you realize that you realize that the second commandment violations are all over the place all over the place you're going to encounter second commandment violations over and over again in evangelism you, you begin talking about hell, for example. Someone says, well, I just can't conceive of a God. Well, stop there. You are not supposed to be conceiving of a God. You begin talking about what a particular passage of the Bible means with someone. And they say, well, I, I just can't conceive of it meaning that. Because then that would make God like this. Or then that would make God like that. And I can't worship a God like that. Have you ever had those kinds of conversations? Second commandment violations. You're conceiving of God other than as He has revealed Himself to be. We need to be ruthlessly revelation oriented. Instead of imagination oriented as we conceive of and as we worship God. Not who do you think He might be. Not who do you wonder what He might be like. Not what do you think He may be similar to. Not what analogy helps you feel like you have some grasp on the divine. What does the Bible say about who God is? This is the thrust of the second commandment. God as He has revealed Himself to us rather than as we conceive Him to be. Think in your own life. Times that you may have resisted a conception of God that the Scripture was presenting to you based on your own emotional discomfort with the way God was presented to you. In scripture, what you were doing was violating the second commandment because you were resisting God as he actually is in favor of God as you conceive him to be. I think we can all, the wheels are probably turning in our minds as to some ways that this might bear out in our lives, ways that this might bear out in our conversations. But let me. Let me bring it home pointedly with this one very specific application. Reformed theologians have referred to something called this, the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is this. Whatever God has revealed and prescribed in the Bible as to how He is to be worshipped, that and that alone is acceptable worship to God. Everything else is not acceptable worship to God. The regulative principle stands in contrast to what's called the normative principle. And the normative principle goes like this. 
whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is acceptable worship. So, if, let's say, let's say a Let's go, let's go straight for the jugular. <laughs> At Christmas time, a lot of churches love to have the cute little kids dress up like shepherds, dress up like angels, and reenact the Luke 2 narrative. Right? When one of the grown-ups reads, and there were in the fields shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, and all the little shepherds march out onto the stage. Right? And as the narrative goes, right? Okay, this is a good example. The normative principle says, yeah, that's fine. It's not prohibited by Scripture. The Scripture doesn't say, don't have little plays and reenactments about this. The regulative principle says, eh, out of bounds. Because God has not prescribed little plays like this. Right? Now, I'm not, I'm not the Grinch who hates Christmas. And I'm not the Grinch who hates little kids dressing up in cute little lamb and shepherd outfits and reenacting things. But what I am is serious about the second commandment. Not conceiving of God as other than He has revealed Himself to us in Scripture. And the argument goes like this. In fact, I think... If I were in a debate, a public debate, with somebody who was defending the use of those sorts of plays at Christmas, they would probably say like this. Well, you're conceiving of God as a God who doesn't accept these things, and I conceive of God as a God who does accept these things. The argument would run pretty close to being that explicit. Because you can't show a chapter and a verse that says we should do these plays and things. Right? And so... The argument would simply go like this. Well, we're not to conceive of what God might or might not like. What might or might not please God. We're not to conceive of what kind of God He might have to be in order for these things to be acceptable forms of worship to Him. We're to worship Him according to the Scriptures. It's as simple as that. So what God has commanded... And only what God has commanded is to be offered as worship to Him. We're not to begin running wild with all of these other forms and things. Because underneath all of these other types of worship is conceptions of God other than as He has revealed Himself to be. And so, just like Nadab and Abihu conceived of God as a God who would be pleased to accept their unauthorized fire? Well, surely we're well-meaning. We don't mean any disrespect. We just want to honor Him. And so we're going to use our imaginations about ways that might be honoring to God. And God struck them dead. Uzzah. Well, I can't conceive of a God that would be displeased by me touching the ark when the oxen are stumbling and it's about to fall. So, I'll touch the ark. Uzzah. Dead. We ought not to start reasoning like that. Right? Well, well I, would, I conceive of a God 
who likes to see us use creativity, who likes to see us try to do things like these little Christmas plays. I conceive of a God that would be pleased about these things. He hasn't prescribed them in His Word. He hasn't revealed to us that He is a God who likes these things. And so we don't worship Him with these things. This is, I think, probably one of the hardest commandments, not necessarily to understand, but to swallow in our day and age. Because again, we've often talked about the rampant individualism that's out there where people are so big on their individual rights. Well, who are you to tell me that God is not like this? Well, I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not anyone to tell you. I'm just saying God has actually said this is what he's like. Right? And people, many people nowadays consider even truth as something that is subjective. Well, who are you to tell me that this is not true? Or this is how I prefer to conceive of truth. These are statements that float around in our culture a lot. And so it's hard for people to accept that there is, God has given us fixed revelation in Scripture. And that conceptions of God that run beyond Scripture are out of bounds. I don't think it's necessarily a hard commandment for people to understand, but I think it is a hard concept for people to accept. But... I said it already and I'll say it again. We need to be ruthlessly revelation-centered instead of imagination-centered as we conceive of and as we worship God. And so we look at the Scriptures for who God is. We look at the Scriptures and see Him reveal Himself most fully and most clearly in the person of His Son. We look at the scriptures and we see him revealed as a God who loves to save sinners. Who sent his son into the world to live a righteous life in the place of sinners. To die a wrath-bearing death, a punishment-bearing death in the place of sinners. We see a God who did not leave his son in the grave to see corruption, but raised him. A God who has raised Christ to his right hand where he sits until He returns to make all things new. We see this God revealed in Scripture and we see clear marching orders for how we are to conceive of Him and how we are to worship Him as we await that glorious day. So let's not have our eyes fixed on conceptions of God here, there, and everywhere. Let's have our eyes fixed on the revelation of God which has been clearly given to us in Scripture.